Good morning again. As I was sitting there preparing to come up here, I got thinking about my brother. My older brother, Alan, was a chaplain in Vietnam. And a couple weeks ago, he did a mission trip over to Nepal. The children's school there was destroyed by the earthquake about a year and a half ago, and they went over to rebuild it. Well, when they arrived, they found out that the six pastors that ran the school had been arrested and had been thrown in jail. So they didn't know what they were going to do for sure, so they had to take a stand themselves. So these men that had went to build the school decided that they came for a purpose, and they built the school. So, and again, as I was sitting there, I got thinking it was 30 years ago that I dedicated myself into the ministry. And in 30 years, I would have never thought I came to a time to think about what's happening to our churches today. How as a pastor, you have to guard your words. You have to be careful what you say to be PC and not get in trouble with the law here. But you know, God's in charge. He'll take care of me no matter what. And I want to thank those pastors over the years that have lifted up the word of God to get us where we are today. I began with our first slide, and I got this simply. Victory is the Lord's. He's in control. You know that during the, our history as the United States, if you ever look at history of the wars that we've gone through, throughout every war, major miracles happened that brought us the victory as a nation. In Pearl Harbor, the Japanese were ready for a third wave, and they decided they had destroyed us enough that they turned and went away. The last wave would have completely destroyed our Pacific fleet. In the Battle of Midway, we would have probably been annihilated if it wasn't for one lonely plane saw where the, the fleet of the Japanese Navy was, was able to prepare and put a fight to them and win the victory. You hear these stories over and over again in the Civil War, World War II, Vietnam, men that hung on to hills that no way they should have been able to do it. But God is the victor. He is the one that prepares our way. And next, I want to look today what we're discussing, and that is the war for independence and what that means to us today and how God protected us through that. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we within this nation still at this time can stand up and proclaim you that we still have the right to freedom of religion. And yes, that means other religions do also, but we will give the task to you to protect ourselves and our faith. Lord, as we gather here today, we proclaim your word. We proclaim your victory. We proclaim your love. And most of all, we proclaim your presence with us today. Lord, we pray that you never will withdraw your hand of mercy throughout this nation. Help us as Christians to stand forward, stand fast, and stand for your word that our nation will always be a light unto other nations. In Jesus' name, amen. 
God had a hand in the affairs of his people. Before and during the War of Independence, God's hand could be seen by the people. I want to make sure I was in sequence here. In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, Benjamin Franklin wrote, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in the room for the, in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. I have lived, sir, a long time, and live long, and the longer I live, the more convincing proof I see of the tr this truth that God governs the affairs of men. On July 18, 1755, George Washington wrote to his brother after the Battle of Mangahela, where all the officers and both armies except for him was killed. But by the all-powerful dispensation of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability or expectation. For I had four bullet holes through my coat and two horses shot out from underneath me, yet escaped unhurt, although death was leaving my companions on every side. Then next, when Washington became the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, he appointed chaplains for every regiment, recognizing that his men needed spiritual nourishment as well as, bodily, uh, as of the bodily kind, for this was the war that could not be won without miracles. When Washington became our first president under the new Constitution of the United States, he said at his inaugural address, no people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which we have advanced to the character of independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. We ought to be no less persuaded that the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. On June of 1776, John Adams, our second president, was in Philadelphia. He wrote, Freedom, Adams believed, did not resist solely on man. Instead, he wrote, it is religion and morality alone. I want to read that part again. It is religion and morality alone. A nation to be, has to have morality in its heart to be protected by God. When we remove morality, we are going to remove God, which can establish principles on which freedom can surely stand. The only foundation for a free constitution is pure virtue. And if this cannot be inspired into our people in a greater measure than we have it now, they may change their rulers and the form of government, but they will not obtain a lasting liberty. This was a letter to uh, his cousin. Then, etched in the marble of, Je of the Jefferson, Jefferson Memorial, uh, Memorial in his honor, his words. God who gave us life gave us liberty. 
Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed the conviction that these liberties are the gift of God? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. If there's ever words that our nation needs to read, it's these right here. I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. Our scripture text today is from 1 Samuel 14, 1 through 23. And as I was preparing this, I realized real quickly that you cannot understand this chapter unless you understand chapter 13, which Brother Steve is bringing over at the beacon today. So I have to do a real quick synopsis for you on chapter 13 so you have an understanding of what was just read a minute ago. To understand chapter 14, we have to take a quick synopsis then. First, we realize in verse, uh, chapter, uh, verse 1, Saul became the king at the age of 30 of Israel, and he ruled for 42 years. But now we read in verse 3 that Jonathan, his oldest son, attacked the Philistine garrison that was in Gibeah, and the Philistines heard about it. So Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. So in verse 3, we see here, verse 2 and 3, actually I should have read verse 2, that Saul had kept 2,000 of his troops for himself. Now I'm sure if he was the king, he probably kept the what? The best of the best. He had the special forces with him. And he gave his son, Jonathan, 1,000 and sent the rest home. Wasn't that special? Saul is taking care of who? Saul. But his son has 1,000. Now, Jonathan, it says in verse 3, Jonathan was about four and a half miles northeast of his father, and he attacked the Philistines. Now, verse 4 says, And all, the, all Israel heard the news Saul had attacked the Philistine garrison. The Israel's now repulsed to the Philistines. Then the troops were summoned to join Saul at Gilgah. So in verse 4 here in chapter 13, we see when the people heard the news of an attack, they said, Saul has attacked the Philistine garrison. Number one, that was false. Saul hadn't done what? He hadn't attacked anything. He was back what? with his 2,000 troops. It was who that did the attack? It was Jonathan. And the people under Saul's leadership gathered together at Gilgah, doing this gave up, and doing this gave up the high ground to the Philistines. So what that meant was this. Jonathan attacked the Philistines. The war's on. The people then immediately ran to Jonathan's side to fight, right? No, they ran where the people were. They ran where the army was. They went where Saul was. And in doing that, they gave up the high ground to the Philistines. Because Saul, all he wanted to do was put distance between him and the Philistines. Verse 5 tells us, uh, excuse me, verse 5, the Philistines also gathered to fight against the Israel. 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops as numerous as the sands of the seashore. 
they went up and camped by Michmash, east of Beth Haven. So we see here that the army of the Philistines gathered to do what? War. They put their troops together and they put them in a position to do harm to Israel. Saul, the leader, though, was still back with his 2,000. It says in uh, reading verse 6, let's read verse 6 through 15. Just stay with it. Everything's going to be in Saul 13 and 14 today. It says, The men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. They hid in caves, thickets, among the rocks, and holes in the cistern. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. They joined the Philistines. Saul, however, was still at what? Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. He waited seven days for the point of time that Samuel had set. He was told by Samuel prior, when this happens, you remain firm for seven days, I'll be there. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserting him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering, the fellowship offering. Then he offered the burnt offering. Just as he had finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. So Saul went out to greet him, and Samuel asked, what have you done? Saul answered, when I saw the troops were deserting me and didn't come within the appointed days and the Philistines were gathering at Mishmash, I thought the Philistines will, will now ascend on me at Gilgah and I have sought for the Lord's favor, so I forced, forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Was he told to do that? No, he was told to do what? Wait upon the Lord. Wait upon San, uh, uh, the prophet. Now Samuel said to Saul, You have been a foolish. You have not kept the command which the Lord your God gave you. It was this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel. But now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man loyal to him, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not done what the Lord commanded. Then Samuel went to Gilgad to Gibbeth and Benjamin. Saul registered the troops who were with him about six men. Now, I began saying in the beginning, Saul had how many men with him? 2,000. Now, after he's done all this, how many men has he had now? 600. The story tells us where's there, where is his 600 men? They're hiding in caves, in thickets, in bushes, and a lot of them had gone over to the what? Enemy. They were as numerous as the sea. Saul's leadership was in a state of confusion. The people lived in a fear and sought to hide. Saul had 3,000, but now he has 300. Does this sound like anything that maybe might be going on today, anybody? If you go to an airport in the United States, you know what you're going to see walking around the outside of an airport? A man carrying an M16. Would you have thought of that 10 years ago? No. We are in a state that we need to get our hearts right and get back to God because God is the protector. God is the one that takes care. Verse 16 says, Saul, his son Jonathan, the troops who were with him were staying in Gibeah. Of Benjamin, and the Philistines were encamped at Mixmash. 
raiding parties were sent out for the Philistine camp in three divisions. One division towards Ophrah Road leading to the land of Shaul. The next division headed towards the Bether Road. And the last division headed down the border road that looks over to the Valley of Zibion towards the wilderness. Now, listen to this. No blacksmiths could be found in all the land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords and spears. So they've done what? They've taken all the what? The blacksmiths. They've taken their what away from them? Weapons. Do you see what happens when you take the weapons away from any nation? It becomes under the power of its enemy. So all of Israel went to the Philistines to sharpen their swords. If they wanted their plows done, their swords sharpened, they had to go where? To the enemy. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for uh, plows, uh, mattocks, and one-third of a shekel for pitchforks and axes, and for putting a point on ox goad. So on the day of the battle, not a sword or a spear could be found in the hand of any troops who were in Saul's and Jonathan's. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had weapons. Now, that's why I said I had to do a synopsis on 13. Here's what happened. Saul, the man called of God, caused his people to be under, under his leadership to be surrounded by the enemy without hope, without weapons, and in their hearts without who? God. Without God. These people, it says earlier, remember how it says the Philistines sent troops this way, they sent troops that way, and they sent troops this way. You know what that meant? They were, guess what? Surrounded. They were surrounded. Now, we can get to the text that I was asked to do. Victory. Victory. Victory is the Lord's. He does not need me, does he? He does not need you. He does not need this nation. But he has asked for us to be part of his family. In that, we have a responsibility. Go with me now to Samuel 14th chapter. I do know it's the fourth. I do know people probably got barbecues, so we will try to go through this as quick as possible. But I had to set up what Jonathan was facing. This one man, his father, the king, hiding where? Back with his men that are now only, what, 600 men. Jonathan knew action had to be taken. In verse 1 it says, Now a Philistine garrison took control of the pass at Michmash. That same day Saul's son Jonathan said to his attendant who carried his weapons, Come on, let's cross over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. However, he did not tell his father. Why do you think he did not tell his father? Because we see from... Saul's character that he would have told him what? Not to go. But 
there are times in our lives as believers when everything tells us no, that God tells us to do what? Go. Jonathan knew he needed to go. Samuel took command of the situation. Verse 2 through 3 says, Saul was staying under a pomegranate tree. Doesn't that sound nice? We said, he is where? He's in the city with his 600 troops. The army is what? Encircled him. And he's doing what? Sitting under a pomegranate tree in Migran on the outskirts of Gibeon. The troops with him numbered about 600. 2,000 now what? 600. Don't you think Saul would understand maybe he's not doing the right thing? The enemy is at the gates and we're saying we're not at war. Does that sound familiar? The troops with him numbered 600. Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod, was also there. He was the son of Ahitab, the brother of Ishkabad, the son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the Lord's priest at Shiloh. But the troops did not know that Jonathan had left. Saul does not have a what? Say it. A clue. What's going on? He doesn't have a clue what's going on. Excuse me. Now, let's read verse 4 through 6. He just got done saying, let's go over. Now it says, there were sharp columns of rocks on both sides of this pass that Jonathan attended to cross to reach the Philistine garrison. One was named Bozes, the other Sine. One stood to the north in front of Michmash, and the other to the south in front of Gibeah. Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, Come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Neither by many or by few. Unlike Saul, Jonathan was determined to take what? Action. He found himself in a terrible spot, a spot his father's leadership had put him in. The enemy had the high ground. Do you understand what this story's telling us? Jonathan, to get to the enemy, had to go into a valley, and the valley had what on each side? Sharp rocks, and the enemy was at the top of the valley. The enemy had the high ground. He had to go through the valley in which he could not provide for himself a what? A defense. Jonathan was willing to do what God wanted him to. He went into a valley knowing that he was placing himself in danger and he had no way to defend himself from what was coming his way. He would have to climb the sharp columns of rocks to get to the enemy. And his dad is where? Back home drinking a mint julep. I like this where it says, and Jonathan said to his attendants, come on, let's cross over. Boy, those are some powerful words, isn't it? One man with his attendants says, let's cross over. Verse 7 says, his armor bearer responded, do what is in your heart, 
You choose. I'm right here with you, whatever you decide. I don't know about you, but to me, that's pretty special. Now, that guy was probably a servant, right? But when somebody says, I don't want you to go alone, you're going to probably get killed with me, you might want to say, could we maybe talk about this a little bit? But no. He said, let's do it. When we are serving in the will of God, we will never, ever, ever, ever need to feel we have been left alone. Amen? You know, preachers have that problem, don't we? <laughs> Sometimes we'll get in the church, and man, we're in a struggle, and you think you're the only man fighting the fight. But it's not true. God always leaves a remnant. God always leaves a remnant. We never have to fight the battle alone. Be it our wives, be it that one deacon, be it that one friend when we were down at Marissa. There's always somebody there with you. You never have to fight alone. Now read with me verse 8 through 10. All right, Jonathan replied, we'll cross over to the men and let them see us. That sounds real smart. If they say, wait until we reach you, then we will stay where we are and not will go up to them. But if they say, come on up, then we'll go up because the Lord has handed them over to us. That will be our sign. That will be our sign. God is always prepared to help us as we serve doing his will. But we must be willing to step out in faith speak out, be in front of our enemies, or against our leadership that is not striving to do God's will. Wait until we reach you or come on up. That is what he was waiting to hear. Okay, we're going to listen, see what they say to us. When we show ourselves, we're going to see if they say, wait until we reach you or Going up. Now, what's the difference in those two statements? What is the difference? To me, it both sounds like I'm going to die either up there or where? Down here. <coughs> but listen, wait till we reach you was an offensive statement. I mean, stay right there. We're going to do what? We're going to come and get you. come on up, was a passive statement, meaning they probably thought. Remember, Jonathan, uh, Saul started with how many in his army? 2,000. Now he has how many? 600. Somewhere, those people ended up somewhere either hiding or going where to the enemy. So most likely, when they heard that word, these Philistines thought they were getting ready to do what? Desert. So they said, oh, come on up. Come on up. So it was a passive statement. Now read verse 11 through 14. They let themselves be seen by the Philistine garrison, and the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they've been hiding. Doesn't that really sound sad? Doesn't that really sound sad? Isn't that what people are saying to us about Christians today? 
Where they been hiding? They took prayer out of the schools. They did what? Nothing. They allowed abortion in our nation. They did what? Nothing. Now homosexuality, even though the word, the word of God says it's a sin, we're the ones that are guilty because we're telling them to repent. We need to be more like Jonathan. We need to put ourselves out front. And you know, I don't know what your place is, but there is a place for each one of us in God's plan. In God's plan. Said they, they called him up. So then Jonathan said, follow me. Jonathan told his armor bearer. Excuse me. For the, uh, Jonathan had climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him. So you understand, if Jonathan now has left the valley and is climbing the cliffs, it says the cliffs were what? Sharp and rocky and terrible. And Jonathan is doing what? Well, if you're climbing cliffs, you again cannot do what? Defend yourself. But it is not our job to defend ourselves. Our job is to lay down our lives for who? God. We have been called for a task and a purpose, and that is to serve God and his kingdom wherever that might be, whatever danger might come our way. We have been called to a task, and that is to serve God. So they climbed with his armor-bearer behind them. Jonathan cut them down and his armor-bearer followed and finished them off. In that first assault, Jonathan and his armor-bearer struck down about 20 men in a half-acre field. They didn't know what hit them. When we let God have control of our life, he will bring the what? He'll bring the victory. Too many times we stand back and hide in our holes or say, oh, I don't hear the word or I don't see what I can do. Having a plan and trusting God is not enough. Let me say that again. Having a plan, Jonathan had a plan, didn't he? He knew what he was going to do, but having a plan and trusting God is not enough. God's people must take action to make a plan, talk about a plan, study a plan, pray on a plan, and not act on the plan is not to believe God will give us the what? victory it's time to stop studying it's time to start serving and making a difference in our nation again you know they gave a, a poll the other day on how many people are proud to be Americans I think it was two years ago it was like 68% now it's like 51% of people said they're proud to be Americans we need to stand up for our nation. We need to be victorious. Now, let's read the final verses here. 15 through 23. It says, Terror spread throughout the Philistine camp and the open fields to all the troops. Even the garrison and the raiding parties were terrified. 
The earth shook and terror spread from God. When Saul's watchman in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, he saw the panic and troops scattered in every direction. So Saul said to the troops with him, Call the row and determine who has left us. They called the row and saw again that who was missing? Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. Saul told Elijah, Bring the ark of God, for it was with the Israelites at the time. While Saul spoke to the priest, in the panic in the Philistine camp increased in intensity, so Saul said to the priest, listen to this, stop what you're doing. Saul and the troops with him assembled and marched to the battle, and there in the Philistines were fighting against each other in great confusion. There were Hebrews from the area who had gone earlier into the camp to join the Philistines. Remember all those that deserted? They were with the what? They were with the Philistines. They were with the enemy. Do you not know there's Christians in a day that have gone over to the side of the enemy? And until we that are standing firm stand up, they're going to stay there. They're going to stay there. But even they joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites' men who had been hiding in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they also joined Saul and Jonathan in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. It's sad to say, in the midst of the battle, when the victory was being won, Saul, the man of God, who had been set aside as king, was still acting in a state of confusion. Look at verse 18. Again, it says, Saul told the priest to bring the, ark of the cov- bring the ark of God, for it was with the Israelites at that time. While Saul spoke to the priest, the panic in the Philistine camp increased in intensity, so Saul said to the priest, stop what you're doing. He did the right thing finally, and that was call for the priest, for God's word, to find out the direction of God. But then when things got so hectic, he said, don't worry about it, I got it, what? covered it's nice to have leaders like that isn't it don't worry about it i got this one i don't need god in the midst of the battle saul stayed confused he acted properly at first because he asked for for the for the priest, for a word from God. But then in his heat of the battle, he went back to trusting himself and ignoring God. Not understanding God was delivering his nation, what? Already. God had called Saul to be king, knowing Saul would have a son called who? Jonathan. We never understand God's ways, do we? We do our best. We understand the word. We, we see his working. But what is going on in our country today? I don't know. But I do know one thing. If we continue to trust in God's word and give him our love and life, he will do what? He'll be faithful and he will guide, lead, and direct our country in the path we should go. He'll lead, guide, and direct us in the path we should go. So in closing, 
Got two last PowerPoints. Last time I had 23. I'm down to 17 this time. I'm a learning. Is that how you say that? I'm a learning? I always apologize to English teachers in my congregation. But God's message to us. God places people in authority over us. We need to respect those people, support, and pray for them. This is where I need to hear a amen. Even though they might be placed over us, that does not mean they are following God's will, though. Their placement might be for us to grow and learn from their position over us. Third, to follow a leader and not speak out when it is obvious they are not doing the will of God places ourselves, our family, God's church, or even our nation in perilous position. And then fourth, when it's all said and done, the bottom line is what? Let's say it together. God is in control. Amen? He's in control. So, now the key is, we can be part of God's plan and strive to serve him. Or, we can hide in our holes and hope it will all get better. That's what freedom is. You understand that? That's what liberty is. We are not forced to do anything in this country except the two things we know, and that's what? Death and pay taxes. But whatever it is, today, we need to thank God for our nation. And if we are not happy with the nation, the way our nation is going, if we are not happy with what we see happening, people dying all around us, people daily, daily people are dying. We need to be Jonathan's. We might be few, but we can make a great difference. We need to serve a great and mighty king because the victory is God's. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this holiday and what it means to us as Americans. We thank you that we have a place where not only can we come and hear, but pastors like myself can preach and proclaim the word openly, knowing that you will protect us. And Lord, if the day comes, which many are already striving to take free freedom of religion away, that you will give us the strength to be Jonathan's. You'll help us to do the right thing. Lord, we pray at this time that you do lift up our leaders. And Lord, in the turmoil of the election that's coming, that people are so confused at our choices, we ask you, Lord, to show us the way you would have us to go. Open our eyes to the truth. Open us to us the leader that we need. And Lord, I pray you burden our people to vote and be part of the system. Lord, as we gather here today, we realize that you are the victor. You won the battle 
on Calvary. You took sin away. And if we accept you as Lord and Savior, you wash it away. But Lord, also you show us that you have the power, the strength to control not only nature but governments. And Lord, we trust you at this time to be with us. I pray you be with our family here, that through our leadership we might do the things that you would have us to do and that we might be the Christians you'd have us to be. And Lord, that we will no longer hide in our holes and our thickets and in our caves, but that we will come out for you and we will serve you. Men that have not served for years in positions, we pray that they might be lifted up and your heart might burden them to be active for you. We cannot let this nation fall to the acts of sin because our families depend upon us. Our children, our grandchildren need Christians to stand up for what is right and what's wrong. Lord, as we come to this point of of invitation, we just lift this up, time up, that if someone wants to just give their heart to you and rededicate their life, they might do that. Maybe they want to come and they want to give their life to you. They realize that the victory can only be won through you, that you died for them on Calvary, and they want to make a decision for salvation. I pray today it is. Maybe someone here today says, I just need a place I can call my family. And they might want to come forward and and present themselves to the church today. Whatever it is, Lord, give us the strength. Give us the power. And even though we know we are a few, we know you will give us the victory. In Jesus' name, amen.